0: Fragments of Silicon. Originally, this uh, podcast was going to have Chris Barassa on, who is the artist on Darkest Dungeon. Uh, technically, I think, creative director. This is his title, but, I mean, he'd be most known for the amazing art he did, which he loves, I think. Can't really speak for him on that standpoint. I love the art. Uh, most people love the art. And when we do live streams of development, it usually involves him drawing art. So, I feel comfortable saying that he is an artist. And he had something come up. He made uh, one of these motions, which you can't really uh, see cause it's a podcast, but it's kind of like crossed forearms, which in uh, some sports means sub. He had something come up, so I jumped in there. Because you know I love being on podcasts. And uh, fielded. Questions to the best of my ability. I mean, a lot of the questions were kind of for Chris, which uh, I was not prepared for, but um, I think it turned out cool, and I had a good time on it, and after listening to parts of it afterwards, I think it turned out okay. And uh, there's a good group. It was it was recorded live, which is uh, a bit of pressure. Added pressure. Um, not that... Podcasts usually have a lot of editing, but you got to have a little extra filter on that one um, when it's live. It's usually a good idea because no taking it back. And uh, it's time for me to take you back to when I was on Fragments of Silicon.
1: Talk series. Recorded live. Fragments
2: of Silicon, the Mewtwo cometh.
1: and welcome to another installment of Fragments of Silicon, your weekly vertical slice of gaming goodness and geek culture. I'm your host, Adam, and with me this week, as always, are Yalix. Hello. Eddie fan.
2: Hug your kitties.
1: And Ogre.
2: (gasps) Sorry, I just woke up. Let me grab a little brush and put a little makeup. (laughs)
1: Uh, (laughs) I'm like, uh, the people who listen to this after the fact will... In fact, nobody's going to get get that. Hey, look, chop suey. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so what's going on with you guys this week? I'm not well, sick for once.
2: Thank you God. God. You say that, and then tomorrow you start throwing up. Oh, please, my back has been killing me for the past week or so. I don't need to be sick anymore and add on to that whole thing. <laughs> uh, is your back Okay. Yeah, my back's fine. It's my back muscles on my left side up near the shoulder. I think I pulled them some time ago. Uh Uh-huh. And they every once in a while I usually sit wrong or lay wrong and they're like, hey buddy, enjoy this week of uh (laughs) That's why in that Mega Man video when I mentioned the back muscles and everything, that's because I was going uh throughout most of that recording.
1: Oh, and Knock has put up the promo. He's getting only six minutes late this <laughs> Anyway, Anyway, uh, so speaking of which, how are videos going? Uh, they're going fine.
2: Um, unfortunately, due to me being sick last week, and we ran low on videos, we could not, unfortunately, get to Xenoverse straight away. Right. That one is going to have to wait until the next game goes up. Yeah. So if you're looking forward to that, I'm sorry, but... We'll get to it eventually. Don't worry about it. Well, the next game you picked is
1: not a long one.
2: It's not really a long one, but it should get some enjoyment out of it, though I was not really pleased with my performance in the first two videos, mostly because I was dead tired. And There's only so much you can do when you have to focus on, eventually after this recording, I have to drive home for a half hour. So maybe I should save some energy. Okay. You can always hand the controller over to Naka. Well, he was the one that was playing. Oh. It's always fun when How somebody Barry? else plays a game you're familiar
1: with. That will be interesting. Mm-hmm. How, yeah, I think, what what is there, like, two or three videos left on Mega Man 3?
2: Yeah. Most, I think. Yeah, I was trying to think. It was last, that, that was the Yellow Devil one.
1: Yeah. One
2: spoiler, so once again we somehow managed to complete the game without continuing.
1: That's somehow we're somewhat good at Mega Man games.
2: You're way better at it than I am.
1: Well, it's like that one video is kind of. Uh... <laughs> yeah, trust me, he still didn't continue. That, that... Somehow. That is surprising. That is really. It,
2: it really is, but
1: Yeah. Awesome note is uh, he's completed uh, the Guardian Crusade uh, Let's Play. Uh, when I talked to him last, he didn't have an idea for what he was going to do next. I, mean, here's yeah, a, I was,
2: I was going to ask, does that mean going back to a two-game rotation or another long one? He didn't mention that, so I'm assuming he has something planned. If not, it's going to play out for a week or so, and then we go back to a two-rotation one.
1: All right. Yeah, well, uh, let me pull back the curtain a bit here. Naka usually doesn't uh, pick his let's plays ahead of time. He's he's more the focus on the current one, and then once that's done, he'll think about what he does next.
2: Yeah, yeah. trust me. He's not alone in that concept. It's like I, I will plan certain ones out because they catch my attention, but most of the time it's like, what's on the list? Let's do that one. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I think Paper Mario and Xenoverse are so far the only ones I've been like, ooh, ooh, oh, wait, nah, in Persona 4, that I've been,
1: ooh, ooh, we got to play in this one. I'm pretty sure there's uh, some other ones in there.
2: Which probably is, but...
1: I mean, you've done, like, 150 games at this point.
2: <gasps>
1: one more, and we get to catch
2: you. <laughs>
1: and that goes into Gullix. Yeah.
2: Well, um, aside from video game-related news, which I'm sure there's probably at least one other person who can talk about that. Um, I visited a new game store today since the one I used to go to closed, and that seems like a pretty nice place, so I have something else to do on Wednesdays that I'm going to need to make sure not to be late for this from. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. And my birthday was Monday, which was good. Had some nice food and stuff, and got yeah, a couple yeah, yeah. of nice presents, including That's a midnight Rebo, which was the Japanese one. I didn't say anything about that. Huh. Maybe I didn't put it there. It did temp. for me. Hmm. Uh, petty fan? Um, Thursday morning, my sister's cat died. Aw. Depressing. You know what's it's even good. more depressing? <laughs> Today, he would have been nine. Aww. <laughs> so, yeah, other than that, just been getting the house cleaned, trying to figure out what me and Los are going to do for our birthday here in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, same old, same old, still tired. Right. Do you still have the sheer unmitigated gall?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, somebody's going to stab you one of these days, Gull. Sorry, might <laughs> no,
2: just be me. It's <laughs> reflexive.
1: Oh, uh, I'm just warning you. Anyway, uh, I guess it's my turn. Uh, not much to report this week. Oh, well, uh, in show news, uh, we're, uh, we're preparing for season four. Got the first few shows uh, filled out there. Uh, of note is we just landed Playism. Now, for those who don't know, they're the people who are bringing Toho over to the West. So which yes. is uh, a thing. Yeah, that's probably going to be a big show for season four.
2: My only concern with that is that is how is how big of an audience they're going to get because a lot of the people who are into Toho have just literally, either, either downloaded somehow or actually I've been heard I've heard
1: a lot of people
2: in the fan base talk about like legit importing the games from Japan.
1: Well, that's a question to ask uh, the rep. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, also, not sure if Naka's going to appear for that, because he usually does some meeting thing with his girlfriend on Wednesdays. And I'm
2: assuming she has some more stuff to deal with, and it and kind of takes up his time.
1: Of course, I'll note, this is, like, this is a few months away, so we'll see what happens.
2: Yeah. We could like, hope so, but it's not too strong of a hope.
1: Well, yeah, he,
2: you know... <laughs> <laughs> Shake the eight ball outlook not so good,
1: yeah, we'll see what happens we I mean, it's it's slated for july twenty second so that's a that, that's a bit of a distance time wise mm-hmm. um, nothing else of note so well if, uh, i think that's it for this week, so merrily we will roll along to the interview co- portion, and uh, this week we are welcoming uh, Kier Myron, is that how, is, am I pronouncing your name right?
3: Uh, Kier Myron. There we go. Though I think that I'm the only family that pronounces it that way. Most people, you would have been right. <laughs> it's,
1: okay. Uh, but anyway, uh, Kier Myron of Red Hook Studios, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. No problem. All right. So let's get started. Where did you come up with the name? Where did you guys come up with the name Red Book? What does that mean exactly in context? Uh, that is a very
3: good question. Um, it is of uh, Lovecraftian influence, but I can't remember the exact part. Mm-hmm. Um, the studio was named before I joined uh, okay. onto Darkest Dungeon, so I can't actually answer that one. Um,
1: uh, and uh... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. I mean, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'll know I'll that my questions were kind of based on uh, you know someone else showing up this week. But you know, I, I, you know it's like uh, I don't know what, what what position does Chris have at your uh, developer?
3: Uh, Chris Chris is the uh, Chris and Tyler are the two founders of Red Hook. Yeah, and, um, that's what they're, I. Thought. They're the creative directors of Darkest Dungeon, I guess, as a group in their own fields. Um. Mm-hmm. so Chris manages all the art and uh, Tyler manages design and then Chris also has kind of total or overall creative direction as well Um.
1: and uh, what is your role on the game? I am a
3: programmer on the game
1: nice alright uh, well h- how many people are working on Darkest Dungeon right now?
3: Uh, currently we have a core team of five um so, add on a technical animator as well as another programmer onto uh, the three already listed. And then we also have contractors for narration and audio that are big parts of the team, um, but uh, they work
1: on other things. And uh, when did you join uh, Red Hook?
3: I joined in December of 2013.
1: Okay. So, that's what, about six, seven months after the founding?
3: Yeah. Yeah, I think the first day was checked in in July.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So it's, it was a concept that uh, Tyler and Chris had been, like, batting around with each other for a while, and they have been kind of waiting to, to mm-hmm. kind of make it together. And uh, the times kind of aligned for them, so they started the project. And then I was getting into indie games and worked with Tyler before, so mm-hmm. talked well, to them and
1: well, wanted to well, join up. Yeah, what, what's their background before Darkest Dungeon
3: and Red Uh They worked at bigger studios um, before mm-hmm. doing this. Uh, their credits are pretty long. Like I think they have about 14, 16 years experience um, before this. I know Tyler's worked on smaller, um, smaller games, smaller teams, as well as bigger teams, and Chris was working at pretty big studios as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, game credits, like, Tyler worked on Horde uh, with me, which is a dragon kind of dual-stick MOBA game that was on the PlayStation Network and Steam would have been the most recent game, and Chris was working on that canceled uh, Pirates of the Caribbean game.
1: Oh, jeez. Uh, 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 Dead Man's Chest, I think? Yeah. Uh, he worked at uh, Propaganda then. Yeah uh. shame that game never came out. But, all right, so what attracted you to Darkest Dungeon?
3: I really like the the gameplay concept of taking a turn-based RPG and having to deal with more um, alternate kind of forces, The like the psychological stuff I thought was really cool. And hearing about the game when it started, that was the stuff that really drew me in. It seems like a unique concept to me. Um, though I imagine there's other games that have oh, done.
1: Yeah. I, I I put a few hours into the game, and my personal experience is it's taking the roguelike. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the roguelike subgenre, but it's taking it to its logical extremes. Mm. Right. Well, okay, for the uninitiated, what is Darkest Dungeon?
3: Uh, Darkest Engines, a term-based RPG that deals with the psychological challenges of adventuring. Uh,
1: yeah, that's that's the thing that really attracted me to this title. It's you know, it's a very uh, how do I put this? It's a very stressful play, like you know, because. The hook is you. your adventure party goes to these very, well, you know, dark dungeons, if you will. And the longer they stay there, there's a stress meter that uh, once filled, you know, it'll enact some psychological traits, you know, like paranoia, fearfulness, uh, resolve. You know, the benefits can be positive or negative. And I'm wondering, where did this idea come from?
3: Uh, the idea was kind of founded um, out of thinking about normal adventurers and thinking that doing that job would make you kind of mentally unstable, like mentally just damaged. Like, you need to go and kill skeletons as a day day job. You're not just going to hang up your sword every day and kind of kick your feet up and read the newspaper. You're going to be kind of scarred if you're actually out there fighting and. Fighting evil forces and and dealing with the type of stuff a traditional RPG would uh, put a person through. Right.
1: Um,
3: so that that's kind of what what spawned the whole kind of like psychological reactions that the heroes would have to to kind of adventuring. Mhm.
1: And uh, geez, it, it's also it's. It's got a lot of the... Well... well okay. Uh, well, how is the game done development-wise? Like, how how do you split all the duties between all of these guys? Um, art-wise,
3: all the art's drawn by Chris the static images. And then we have a technical animator named Brooks, and he kind of cuts everything up and gives it all that animation of life. Like, there's not frame-by-frame animation. It's kind of all... Manually animated by him using a program called Spine. Uh, Tyler's throwing huge amounts of data at the programmers, like all the different stats and values of every single thing, and then uh, me and uh, the other programmer, Pierre, were just kind of putting it all together. And, uh, I mean that's kind of how we divide it because I mean there's so much to do and only five of us so mm-hmm. uh, we all kind of stick to our lanes
1: and uh, well have you found the uh, doing the indie stuff harder or easier than doing like the the bigger projects?
3: I've only really worked on um, projects of okay. this kind of size. Uh, Well, I guess I've worked on, like, 18-person teams, so it actually hasn't really been that much different than what I've done in the past. Um, Like, the most I've ever worked with was, like, five programmers on my team, so Mm. two isn't that really that big of a difference. And, yeah, I mean, we all... Yeah, we actually... I don't think it's really been that challenging working on a small team for us. Okay. Making the game has been harder than, like, oh, how do we... How could we do this without five producers and the QA team?
1: Uh, believe me, we've had people on on the show who, uh, you know, single person or two person teams. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but anyway, so where did the side scroll come? You know, why why make this a side view uh, RPG? Uh, that's yeah. I'm not. I'm not. Uh...
3: I'm not sure why we made that choice. I imagine it has to be art-related, because mm-hmm. um, because at its core, the side-scrolling isn't super important. Like it could have been top-down, and like the map works in a top-down sense. So I, mean, I, I imagine that the side-scrolling is really a, a strategic and artistic art choice. But I'm not. I wasn't there for that decision being made. So.
1: Fair enough. Uh, it's like, if I had to guess, it, it would make it stand out a bit.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, there's not a lot of uh, side-scrolling dungeon crawlers out there right now.
1: Well, it's like, and it, it, it also. Um, sorry, Vern. For... Well, it's like, are you privy to like the base inspiration for this game? But like, where the uh, whole Gothic Victorian aesthetic came from?
3: That's not really something I could speak too deeply on.
1: Yeah, I <laughs> said sorry. My my questions were kind of based on uh <laughs> being here, but no.
3: Yeah, sorry we had to switch it out.
1: It's fine. Things happen like that, you know. But well, uh, what do you do programming wise?
3: Um, we we program the game mostly in C plus uh, plus using C plus plus eleven and uh it's really all over the place like because we only have two programmers i'm doing stuff like
1: Mm -hmm.
3: the combat the town a lot of the ui the analytics um right audio uh just there's like so so much stuff going on and we don't really have the uh the way the current programming team is built, we don't really worry about like, oh, this is your thing and I'm scared to touch it. If we need to kind of work in each other's code, that's fine. Um, So it's really just kind of a all over the place kind of spattering of tasks programming wise. Um,
1: And uh, are you all locally based?
3: Yeah, we're all in uh, Vancouver. Um, uh, the, The musician as well as, um, the audio people are also in Vancouver, and the narrators are far. I don't know. I want to say Minnesota, but I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> I didn't
1: know that. Well, that, that, that probably makes things a bit easier. Yeah, we, we've we been working out
3: of an office uh, for most of the development so far. We recently moved out of that, and we're switching offices. So we're going to do a little bit of home stuff for the next little bit. But, um, yeah, definitely being in the same uh, room helps with getting stuff sorted because we don't really have the time to think, completely think of all the outcomes of decisions being made and and have everything so planned out that nothing could go wrong.
1: Right, right. So now,
3: being able to turn around and ask a question saves you a lot of time.
1: Right. <laughs> right. So, well, now, I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer this question, but now, uh, given that Darkest Dungeon is a very hardcore focused RPG, very daunting, very, you know, by design uh misery inducing game. Are you worried that's going to uh, scare away some potential players?
3: Uh, I I think it's it the nice thing about making indie games is we don't have to make games for everybody. Mm-hmm. So we're pretty upfront that it's going to be difficult when you boot up the game, we're telling you like things are going to go bad. So not, not really too worried about it, especially because we don't have a fail state. So Mm -hmm. you can just keep dying and we're never going to stop you from playing the game. Right. So it'll be, it'll take a lot of challenge to to actually progress through the the plot quests and, and level Mm -hmm. up the dungeons and level up your heroes. And you might be able to lose a lot in a very short amount of time, but like you can keep, grinding against it if you find it difficult. So
1: Yeah, I as suppose as that, that's one of the other things. This is actually one of the more lenient roguelikes I've played. I mean, there, there's definitely a penalty state, and let me quantify that, because uh, the way it works is you... Like, you're the landlord of this uh, cursed plot of land, and you're trying to, I don't know, restore it or whatever, and you're, you recruit a whole bunch of adventurers... From this caravan, and they're your proxies, and you build them up with items, equipment, experience, and all that stuff, and they can die. And when they die, you you get kicked out of the dungeon. You you lose all your progress with those characters, but you yourself aren't dead. I've seen this implemented in other roguelikes. So, uh, you know, what was the impetus behind this decision?
3: I think. Um... I think it was. It's built out of. We're encouraging you to try new party compositions. We almost want you to lose heroes. Um, we want you to know what you're playing with as far as risk. So, I think that, um, and and it also like makes it more about the heroes. Like your heroes are your most valuable thing in in the whole town. So I think I think it encourages how those upgrades in your heroes and meaning something and, and taking them on the adventure and, and seeing how they develop as characters. And I think that all just builds into the character development of your roster of heroes.
1: And uh, what kind of heroes can you recruit?
3: Oh, um, so we got 10 classes currently. Um, let's see if I can list them off we got a grave robber, bounty hunter, leopard jester, crusader Vestal, plague doctor, occultist oh, did I say bounty hunter
1: Think so hmm.
3: yeah. uh, it's always i always had trouble there with them um yeah we got we got a wide variety of character classes and we have more coming during early access.
1: Right. And uh, how do they interact as far as the party is concerned? Because that seems to be a big part of the game.
3: So they can interact in a few ways. Um, I mean, they have skills that can heal each other and buff each other up. Uh, Other ways they can interact is kind of moving. Their skills can move them in combat and your order of uh, heroes is very important to what skills you can use. Kind of. It's actually one of my favorite parts of the game is the position-based combat.
1: Uh, I noticed that.
3: Yeah, because certain skills can be used from different ranks, so you can't use your... Certain people might have, like, a little deck, or they can't use that in the back row. So what order they're in matters, and if that changes, that affects what skills you can use and and uh, where your heroes are effective. So in combat, those are kind of the ways they can interact with each other. And, and when they become overstressed, then they'll start acting out, as as we say. And they might react to something that happens, encouraging somebody or stressing them out, or they might refuse an action uh, based on what their mental status is, such as if they're a masochist, they won't want to be healed. So you'll go to heal them, and they'll say, no, I, I want to feel the pain. And you have to learn what uh, the different psychological states or afflictions and how they will affect what you can and can't do to your heroes. Right.
1: And, uh, is there any way to remove these, uh, status effects?
3: Yeah. If you get, if you get the stress back to zero, which is something you do in town, um, then, uh, then you can remove their afflicted state. Hmm. So you so, can send them to like the tavern or the church and then they can, do different activities to reduce their uh, stress
1: well right. so there's also the chance that they could get another affliction from like those activities like gambling you know pulse gambler or alcoholic on the mind immediately
3: yeah i mean every every all the activities have their own risks right. they might go on a drunken vendor and lose an item or they might <laughs> they might uh, get a new positive quirk and and become better based on the activity right that you
1: know that seems to be the you know the longer you keep uh, these adventures alive, the more uh quirks they pile up uh,
3: you, or, yeah that's that's kind of what differ uh, that, that's the main thing that would um mm-hmm. differentiate the if you had two of the same class that's going to be what's going to be the difference because somebody might have a reduced range quirk or they might be only go to certain activities and that'll affect their value to you or how useful they are in certain circumstances based on those quirks. And they get those as they adventure on when they finish quests, that's a point where they get quirks. So they might get quirks from activities or they might get quirks from, uh, attacks like dogs can give you rabies and that's a quirk you got to deal with.
1: Right. And, well, so what are some of the functions of town in
3: this game? So the town is where you really manage your roster of heroes. So the town's where you're going to be upgrading your heroes, getting new heroes, as well as putting them in those activities. So if you want to get new skills for your heroes and upgrade them, you're going to be doing that in town. And similar to XCOM, you kind of do all that and then choose a mission, go on a mission, then come back to town, do a round of management, and then go on another mission.
1: And uh, so, this game is currently in early access. Where is it in terms of stability and content?
3: Um, it's it should be. I hope it's stable. Well, um, yeah,
2: far-
1: it's definitely one of the most uh, stable early access games I've ever played.
2: Like-
3: yeah, I mean, we recently. Uh, I don't. Yeah, we're we're constantly fixing people's. Hardware issues and mm-hmm. and uh, that's calmed down a little bit, but hopefully that would be stable enough for most people. And we have three of the five dungeons in, and ten of the fifteen classes in. So that's, I guess that's kind of a way of looking at how much content there will be in the game. Um, we're saving the end game, which is the darkest dungeon. We're saving that for final release, so that will come out, and you'll have to be prepared. And everybody will kind of give that a shot at
1: once. Mm-hmm and uh how how far away would you say all that is um
3: we're still we're still trying to figure that out um it's uh we we don't really have a date to confirm yet um so yeah it's it's hard to say I mean we don't really wanna kind of commit to a date and then miss it
1: no that that makes perfect sense to me so. mmhm uh, Here's, yeah, somebody might hear,
3: might hear that and will hold you to it. Yeah. Well, one thing I will say is that we are going to, as far as content updates, uh, we're going to be doing them in relatively sizable chunks. So it'll be a couple bosses at once or a couple of the classes at once. It's, um, we're going to kind of save them up as bigger events.
1: So, uh, do you get feedback from the people who have bought the game already
3: yeah yeah we get a yeah we get a huge spectrum of feedback from uh, really good um, bug reproduction steps like these are the these are the five things you need to do in order and this will happen hundred percent of the time to um, some people just saying I saw this happen once I enjoy the game and then a lot of like yeah it's 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 yeah we're getting lots of lots of different feedback and kind of compiling it and and looking at it all yeah.
1: and uh well, what what did the day of bug fixing look like
3: uh well i, I mean it depends on the day like when we launched mm-hmm. uh Russians i shouldn't just say russians anybody with um like non uh english character usernames and windows mm-hmm. couldn't save the game. So that was a that was a hectic bug day or day day of bug fixing fixing that up. Um, that was like a day in, um opposed to some days we can bang through like thirty kind of small things. Yeah. Uh, we don't really have a huge amount of a uh, QA power behind us, <laughs> other than what we have and and uh, the people. So,
2: well, that's what early access is for, kind of.
3: Yeah um so we have we have a couple different um like we have development branches that sometimes we expose to get people to check to see if what we did fixed um because we're really cautious about breaking people's stuff and uh it makes every bug fix mean a lot more as far as uh double checking than before release where i mean if it broke a week before that's not the end of the world
1: right and uh well, have you been surprised by how popular the game seems to be so far?
3: Yeah, it's, it's been, um, yeah, it was since we kind of gave it out to, I mean, I mean, even before then, I, like the reception we got for the first trailer was crazy to me. But um,
1: All right, and
3: yeah, since, since we've released, it's been nuts. Like when we gave out the keys to the backers and the press um, the weekend before, it was just nuts. Since then, seeing all the people play the game, talk about the game, fan art, people making mods, even though we're not done,
1: and Th- that's just what PC players do. Yeah, um,
3: yeah, it's it's
1: it's crazy. Um, yeah. Like like uh, Jim Sterling uh, really seems to like the game. Uh, that's where I first started Darkest Dungeon.
3: Yeah, I mean, I watched I watched one of those streams because so that was pretty. I mean, it's crazy seeing like everybody, like people you know outside of um, your kind of current circles, seeing the game like that and playing it. Like we had Felicia Day play it the other the other week, which was crazy. And um, I mean, I'm a big Giant Bomb fan. They played the game, which was really exciting for me. Yeah.
1: So, uh, were you around for the Kickstarter campaign? Yep.
3: Yeah. yeah, I was there before the Kickstarter. Okay, So, how did that go? It went really well. It was <laughs> really nuts. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it was crazy. It, it went really well. We had a lot of excitement. We didn't really know how well it was going to do, and we kind of did the best we can and released it. And it, I mean, it got funded in a day, so that's always good.
1: Okay.
3: And yeah. uh, we had a lot of things line up well which is nice. Like we had the front page of game trailers or like one of the main cells of game trailers for the launch week of our Kickstarter, which is, which was crazy.
1: Um, and, uh, right. So the game was currently going for $20. Is that like the early access price or is that like how much the game is going to cost at release as well?
3: Um, we haven't, uh, We have com- I don't think we have a confirmed final price for the game um, yet. But I, it's. It, I would doubt it would be uh any cheaper at the final release.
1: Well, it's usually. Well, it's actually more. The way it works is it's uh, cheaper to buy in early access or it's supposed to be versus you know it goes up in price when it gets uh, formally released. The Minecraft model, if you will.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I, I we just like, haven't confirmed what that price will be yet, um, to my knowledge.
1: Right, so we're, we're getting low on time, so just a couple more questions here. Yeah. Uh, let me see. Are you designing it for Windows only, or are you uh, doing Mac and Linux as well?
3: It's currently working on Mac. It's, yeah, it completely works on Windows and Mac. Okay. Um, and we're going to do Linux as well. We confirmed that in the Kickstarter, right. so that's going to be coming later. And shouldn't be too. I mean, I haven't done Linux development before, but it shouldn't be too bad considering we're using uh, APIs that are friendly towards Linux. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: As well as we're going to be PS4 and Vita. Right.
1: I was going to say finally, uh, you know, anything to report on the PlayStation version of the
3: game? They're going to be day and date with the um, PC version. We we haven't started on them yet. and Sony's going to be helping us port that. Oh. So. Um, uh,
1: from their uh, game development team, I'm trying remember what they call.
3: Yeah, I'm yeah, not, not 100% sure what, um, yeah. what the formal name is. Um, but yeah, Sony's going to help us port it to PS4 and Vita, and uh, what we have for the um, right. controller support that we're going to add to PC, uh, yeah. that'll be what you can expect from the PS4 version. Right and is this game being done in unity no it's a it's a proprietary engine
1: it's actually that's uh, actually kind of intriguing because we have so many devs on this show who you know work in unity for obvious reasons. Yeah. but uh, you know, it's like but yeah, uh well, I've enjoyed uh, the game so far. I'm looking forward to seeing what you have uh, you know the final bits of content.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and looking forward to the final release, and hope you know might have you back on the program when the game uh, comes out uh, officially. But you know, for our audience, you can get the game right now on early access. It is twenty dollars. You know, it's you know it, uh, it it's stable enough and full enough where I can actually recommend uh, a purchase here. Now, always a dicey subject when it comes to early access stuff because, well, there's been a lot of jank on early access, unfortunately. Kind of selling the name of the of the uh, process. Anyway, um, Kara, thank you for taking time for uh, joining us this week.
3: Thank you for having me, and thanks for the recommendation and kind
1: words. Yeah, no problem. Uh, Petty fan, play us uh, out.
2: Mr. Q there? I swear I didn't almost hit the wrong button when playing the music. I don't know what you're talking about.
1: Anyway, so welcome to the topic of discussion. This week we're talking about digital archiving. Or why
2: some people seem to think that librarians are hackers and why that's stupid.
1: Yeah. This is not going... Yeah. This is not going to be an objective debate. It's like, there will be very... There will be many unkind words said toward the ASA.
2: Car and feathering will occur. Be ready.
1: Because they've said some of the stupidest shit I have seen lately. That that covers some ground, because I regularly hear things about the Republican Party. (laughs) No. But I'm tish. Anyway. So... Uh, the core of the matter is uh, this group called the ESA. They're the big lobby group for the big publishers. You know, they, they're like they're the equivalent of the uh, MPAA or RIAA. You know, uh, so you're talking about some sterling ground already. And so, about last week, in fact, it was a bit before the sh- uh, last week's show broadcast. You know uh, the e f f uh published uh, this uh they're this group who's the the electronic frontier foundation they're they're currently seeking to change the copyright laws in this country Believe it or not so specifically they're
2: asking the but cop- they're not they're not changing them the way that they should be changed
1: yeah they, it's like okay, yeah, it, it's just it's co- it's does a change, it's more an exemption if you want to be technical about it. But what they're seeking to do is they're asking an exemption from the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, you know, that the fucking thing, VCMA, DM, DMCA. Uh, there's an anti-circumcision provision, with, and they want to get rid of this for archiving purposes.
2: Anti-circumcision who?
1: Yeah, anti-circumvention (laughs) provision.
2: Okay. (laughs) Yeah, we know what you're thinking of. Let's keep that to a minimum.
1: Or, if you will, it's called Section 1201. You know, it's like, uh, okay, let me just read here. Uh, Yeah. Section 1201 is for those who modify games and keep them working after the server's you know, they're doing this so they can uh, preserve games that uh, uh, their servers shut down, or you know they go into the void, uh, you know, uh, abandonment. You know, it's like that gray market thing that, you know, maybe piracy, maybe pr- preservation. You, you're not quite sure.
2: Mm-hmm. The thing where technically no one owns it, which you know they just
1: can't have. Yeah, or or they're mired in a legal limbo for one reason or another, and what you know, and what the ESF is trying to do is they're trying to preserve games that you know are no longer you know no longer hooked up to servers. They need uh, authentication, uh, you know, think stuff like Bioshock. Uh, or a lot of EA games, I believe, and Square Enix uh, games have th- that kind of authentication in them. Mm-hmm. You know, all, all sorts of nasty DRM things. And the ESA's response has been okay. Has been no, because it would quote undermine the fundamental copyright principles of on which our copyright laws are based upon. And it would also, yeah.
2: Let me. It'll destroy the industry. Let me lay the it
1: here. Yeah. yeah. The the USA also says that exceptions to the Section 1201's blanket ban would send a message that, quote, hacking, an activity closely closely associated with piracy in the minds of the marketplace, is lawful. Imagine the havoc that could result if, if people believed hacking was ever legal. Yeah, it's like, uh, but they they believe that any altering any modification any you know anything any kind of tinkering into existing software is hacking and therefore illegal and would quote destroy the industry as we know it unquote so you, you know
2: just like all those other things that would destroy the industry as we know it
1: yeah So, where to start on this? Well, Dalek, you you seem to be quite pumped up for this topic, so, you know, why don't you
2: start? Personally, I'm the kind of person who likes having records and having stuff around. I'm the kind of person who, frankly, got a little bit annoyed at at the MMO Final Fantasy just for being numbered things, just because that means that they won't be playable, and that's a series that's legacy. But this goes way beyond that kind of thing, because there are games that are important to gaming history that just, I mean, there's a reason for, like things like DOSBox exists for, to play games that computers can't play normally. Now, frankly, this would probably say that's illegal even.
1: Oh yeah. 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 It, it, it's trying to, the NSA is trying to say that, you know, they don't really know what hacking means. You know, you know, it's like emulation isn't hacking. You know, Shit, it, it, along their lines, modding is illegal.
2: Like, you know, you, you you want. It's just modding. You know what else is probably illegal? Porting games to other services. Uh, it,
1: it, It's like, you know, basically co- you know it's holding copyright above all else. Yeah.
2: which is a whole other thing because copyright is already. The original intent of copyright was not for people who create things to have exclusive rights to those things forever, which is what all of the industries, not just this industry, but all of them pretty much, from books to movies to this, have been trying to keep copyright in perpetuity. The whole point was that there should be a period of time where it's exclusive to you. And originally it was just a certain number of years that was like within the average person's lifetime. Now it doesn't expire until quite a while after that person is dead and there's the ability for people to pick it up
1: after that. Yeah, And here's the thing. This shit will be archived whether they want to or not, because you know, actual hackers, actual bootleggers, they don't give a shit about this.
2: Yeah, this is only going to stop people who wanted to do it out of good intentions and make it publicly available.
1: Yeah. Or, you know, they want to preserve it for future generations you know, the, the, they don't want the earliest video games to become like the earliest silent films. You know, we lost a lot of... Now, I'll note different situation in that case because a lot of early silent films we lost because of the material uh, they were put on.
2: A lot of early TV shows, too. Like uh, Right. One of the ones that's really popular nowadays that people have noticed is the the lost things of Doctor Who where it's just... Uh, was not considered important at the time, so they got rid of it.
1: Right. Although that was actually, that's actually more in line with what we're talking about here because uh, early, early, early films were done with nitrate stock and that became unstable and explosive after a while. <laughs> so,
2: yeah, that, that's the thing that happened with some movies is that, oops, all of our movies blew up.
1: Yeah, that, that that actually happened. Versus now the television thing, that's actually what we're talking about here. They, you know, it's like the people in charge of, like, the BBC at the time didn't see the value in retaining, you know, episodes of Doctor Who and other programming at, at, at that time because, well, it, it's done. You know, the way television worked in the 50s and the 60s was, you know, reruns? What are those? You know, not to mention that the equipment used, like the, the tape decks, they were really expensive. So they really couldn't. Uh,
2: Plus, you need storage space for the things which were that, good size. So
1: yeah. So so basically, they said, you know, once like once they were done with foreign affiliates, that's why a lot of Doctor Who episodes are found overseas because. The, the, the last stop for Doctor Who episode was, you know, uh, affiliates in, say, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and, and even like uh, the USA later on. You know, but, and, and that's, and sometimes the tapes would get quote unquote lost or kept overseas or whatever. And, or, or, or some people would save the tapes because they saw the value in, Saving those things, even though they weren't supposed to do that.
2: Right, and the, even though the companies that made the things didn't.
1: Yeah, and, and that kind of brings us full circle. You know, you know, it, fortunately, the, there are people out there in the world that will save stuff, even though the publishers. Now, and let's be honest here. The ESA is the will of the big publishers. Your Sonys, your Microsofts, your Nintendos, your EAs, Ubisofts, and on and on and on. You know, they're all ESA members. So this is their like collective will.
2: Though so not necessarily all of the small players who might have slightly more altruistic opinions about some of this stuff.
1: Right. Well, well I'm sure the thing differs from publisher to publisher. Like... Like say Nintendo, like Nintendo, in spite of their stances on emulation, like you know they, they like they'll still claim that emulators are illegal. Yet Nintendo is one of the biggest preservationists out there. I mean, like if you have ever read like the Iwata asks series, like I, I remember one of them where they busted out the original Legend of Zelda design document and the, and the original map. You know, they save all that shit. Like, from what I understand, like, they save all the code from their uh, consoles, and so on and so forth. And let's not forget that, you know, uh, uh, the Passes business, you know, uh, like the Virtual Console, or GOG.com, or the PlayStation Classics, and so on and so forth.
2: Yeah, there are a lot of places that are legitimately selling... Right. older games now for nostalgia value and for people who to show to people who weren't around at that time and well, some of that might even be put on questionable ground depending on the how far they go with this kind of laws
1: right and you know it it's like and th- th- this stance that the ESA has taken is. So so short-term thinking. Like, so, uh, you know, if it's not in the now, then it's worthless. A- and it's also, you know, it also permeates into what we, you know, modern gaming. So, you know, we were talking about this on Sunday, and I brought up the NBA 2K14 incident. So, for those who don't know... Ha, 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 ha.
2: I'm confused too, but let's move on. Well we talked about this the other no, just th- that that's a glorious uh failure.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so for those who don't know, the game NBA two K fourteen saw its servers uh pulled uh recently or they would have been they would have been pulled and the game only came out ooh like a little more than a year. And and two K was like, you know, it's all right. Your your saves will be fine. Your your characters will be fine. And it turns out, no, it it ruined the saves. It it desynced things. It was just a mess.
2: Yeah, they had Apparently, they had originally said that yes, the servers are going to be going down at some point. But when the servers go down because in this game for some reason the save function for the single player mode is connected to your online account, because that makes sense, I guess. Uh, they said that that was going to be converted to a, a console-side save thing, and also that their uh, microtransaction uh, thing would be transferred to uh, yeah. a skill point-based purchase thing. Which, And of course, when the time came to shut down the servers, they decided to not bother with this.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah. So. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's everything that that, uh, that people feared. You know, with online DRM, microtransactions. You know, just it. It was the. It's the nexus of the shit of modern gaming right here. For a parallel, Steam has said, I believe, that
2: if Steam ever goes out of business. Yeah. they will remove the DRM from their games.
1: That's what or at they, least they, Valve
2: has. Yeah. And, uh, and that this just goes to show that, well, they really don't have to do that. Yeah. And what they did with the 2K14 thing is they put the servers back online. They said, for this game and for future games... We're going to leave the games in operation for two years, and they did said a whole bunch of stuff about how it's going to be all right now, except for they didn't say anything about oh yeah, and we are actually next time going to actually move your saves console side and uh, put in a skill point based purchase system.
1: Right. So to tie it all into what we've been talking about, if 2- if 2K had been uh, continued to have been stupid about things and let the servers online. What probably would have happened is you would have seen, uh, you know, private servers emerge in place of the, in place of the official servers because people still wanted to play the play the, play the content. They wanted their single player safes to work, and according to the ESA, that would have been no, you know not good. That that would have been against regulations because. It's against the publisher's will, or whatever. And
2: when the DS's internet went off, or DS's online support went off, there were some people who were talking about setting up uh, private servers for some of those games. I don't know if any of that actually happened.
1: Well, it's the only. Well, what happened in that case is GameSpy stopped all servers. So. Yeah. Oh no,
2: I, I know why, but there were people talking about like
1: because yeah. you
2: can't you can connect a DS to a spoof server.
1: Well, well, let's get to the ur example of this. Fantasy Star Online. This is really the first game I can think of where the game was preserved uh, beyond what the publisher wanted. Um, there is no way to play Fantasy Star Online, uh, you know, uh, publicly anymore. Anyway. Sega shut down all the servers for all the versions: Dreamcast, uh, GameCube, Xbox. And PC. The only way you can, but that hasn't stopped people for you know, like the Dreamcast and GameCube and the PC versions from hosting uh, their own private servers because they still want to play the game. You know, and as far as I know, Sega really hasn't see, sought to shut those people down. Yeah, it's like I, I can't remember where they said. but I think
2: they said that as as long as they don't re-release. The game like on next gen consoles or whatever, they really don't care because they're making nothing off the game anymore. But like, I guess they might do something if like they were to say port it, port Fancy Star Online to like the Xbox One or something.
1: Right.
2: Then they may make... like just make a new one. But yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, if they can up with a way where they'd be making money off Fancy Star Online one again he would probably seek to have those servers shut down. Yeah. is more what I'm getting at. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's like in, you know, I, we could go on and on with the vitriol, but, you know, and I'll note, it's not just, you know, sites like, say, Home of the Underdogs,
2: you know, uh,
1: that, that's uh that's one of those gray market sites that have a lot of games that were discontinued. Like you know the the only way you could get it was either you know hope you can track down the uh, physical release or you'd have to go to one of these sketchy sites. And you know thankfully uh, you know publishers like say Night Dive Studios exist and you know uh Group and GOG exists that are preserving this. I don't know that. As you know, uh, there are preservation efforts going on in spite of the ESA stance. Like uh, the 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 Internet Archive has a whole bunch of arcade and PC games uh, preserved on their websites.
2: which are abandonedware, So,
1: well, this is, they're not abandonedware, because okay. I think they're actually done in conjunction with the publisher. Oh, okay. yeah,
2: most of them are.
1: Yeah, Beca- because. The Internet Archive's kind of run into trouble with that kind of thing before. Like, just look up their battles with the Grateful Dead. Ah. Yeah, so. uh, And you've also got, like, the the ASF sites, a museum like uh, the Oakland, California's Museum of Art and Digital Entertainments. You know, and there are museums, literal museums dedicated to preserving video games. And, hell, it's like video games... There's even video games in the Smithsonian. Yep. You know, so it's nothing like, uh, you know, it's nothing like the National Registry. You know, video games haven't reached that point yet where, you know, where the U.S. government will preserve film prints for future generations that are culturally significant. Now, maybe one day, but... Until that happens, you know, there are other groups who are dedicated, you know, both legally and, unfortunately, illegally to preserving stuff for, you know, for one thing or another. All right. So any final thoughts on this subject?
2: Um, Love your game. Staying in the way of preservation of history or else I will smash you (laughs) into history. Yeah, I know I haven't talked much, but history is kind of a big, very, very important yeah. topic to me. How? That I really want to do something with that at some point. But it's just hey. the stupidity of the people just going, we shouldn't preserve history because then I'll lose out on the money for it. Yeah, this kind of hits close to home for me because I'd kind of like to be a librarian eventually. That's okay. kind I got- of where I'd like to go, so.
1: Okay. Th- okay. The reason I picked this topic is because I actually have a degree in history. You know, I, you know, by training I am a historian. I just happen to end up in communications for other reasons. But the point is, I know how important preserving history is. I, it's my fucking background. And seeing shit like this pisses me off on a lot of levels.
2: Yeah. You know? What part of doomed to repeat it do you not understand? <laughs> The whole concept, really, apparently.
1: Yeah. It's like, I do not want to see the digital equivalent of crumbling fucking papyrus. Uh huh. You know, uh, when it doesn't need to happen. And, you know, those who spout such idiotic statements, I'm glad they don't have the power to stop this. You know, yeah, 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 the law, the law, the law, but as I said, you know, the, uh, there are games that will be preserved you know, uh, regardless of legality. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. that's kind of the magic of the Internet. Also, don't forget how international the Internet is. You know, they could be preserving their game, these games in, say, Sweden. You
2: know. Yes, there are certainly parts of the Internet that do not, are not affected by U.S. copyright, even if they did care about it, and there are certainly even more that just don't care.
1: Well, well look at the Pirate Bay. They keep trying to take it down, but it keeps coming back. Even when they took out that mountain server, it came back. <laughs> you know, it—it's it, 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 like you can't kill it, no matter how hard you try. Anyway, so that's about it for this week. Uh, as I don't know, as far as the topic of the discussion is next week. Once again, we've got a lot of things floating around. We haven't decided yet. Uh, but anyway, our guest next week is going to be Laurent uh, McCure, a uh, French name, of Freema Games. Uh, they're, the, they're the developers of the recently released co-op platformer called uh, Chariots. I put a few hours into it. I'm, I'm about mm, four or five levels in. It's really good, but I have a big question for these guys next week. Where is the online co-op? now I I was told that this game was played best in co-op mode, and the problem is it's only uh, from what I've uh, dredged up. It's oh, uh, oh, hang on. Uh, it's like Max uh, actually going to. Uh, oh, okay. yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, the game is got local co-op, and I'm always glad to see it when a PC game is. Has that, but it doesn't have any online co-op, so I can't currently test out that mode because all all the people I know who would play this game are online. I hate so, that just the way. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering because I notice this is a big thing with platformers. You know, they tend to not have the online co-op. And, you know, I'm wondering what's behind all that. I'm suspecting latency issues, but we'll find out next week. But until then, all I can do is wish you good gaming.